Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, a majority of Israeli lawmakers, those in the governing coalition, passed the contentious and divisive Reasonableness Standard Law, which will limit what has been the High Court of Israel's role to review and possibly overturn government decisions that seem unreasonable. The new law, the first of several proposed reforms to Israel's judiciary, follows 29 weeks of protests by hundreds of thousands of Israelis and has sparked threats by labor unions to strike, by businesses to shift investments, and by military reservists to decline to serve. Joining us today to explain what the passage of this law might mean for Israel's democracy is AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer Jason Isaacson. Jason, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Manya. Good to be back. So, Jason, for those listeners who don't quite understand the judicial reforms process in Israel, I want to steer them to a few articles in our show notes to help them get up to speed. Here, I'd like to devote this time to what it means. But first, I do have a fairly basic question. Would you please share AJC's perspective on the package of proposals? Thank you for asking, Anya. When the package was put forward by the new governing coalition at the beginning of this year, we met with senior officials of the government, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, and expressed concern that such an ambitious package should only advance with the broadest possible support in Israel. If you're going to change fundamentally the rules of the game and how Israel is governed, the balance of power, the checks and balances that exist between the legislative branch and the judicial branch, and you have to point out that in Israel, the legislative branch and the executive are virtually the same. They're in the same party. So it's the balance of power between the judiciary and the rest of the government. If you're going to make that kind of a fundamental change, you really need to strike a national consensus, the broadest possible consensus. So we encouraged the prime minister, and we also met with opposition leaders early in the year and urged that they get together and try to work out some kind of a compromise. It's not as though altering the system of government is a crazy thing. The Supreme Court, the High Court of Justice in Israel, is an unusually empowered court. It has extraordinary power to strike down government actions. So it's not crazy. And over the years, there have been other efforts to adjust. Adjustments have been made in this balance of power, the way the judiciary operates. That passed in, there's a multi-stage process in, in, in passing legislation in the Israeli Knesset. If you're going to make these kinds of big changes, and look, by the way, Look what's happened in Israeli society over the last 29 weeks. There have been protests every week, sometimes more than once a week. Hundreds of thousands of people have been out in the streets, a massive display. Democracy has been on full display in Israel over this period. And it was very clear from public opinion polls that many in the Israeli public were not happy with this proposal and with the whole package if it was going to be rammed through unilaterally. So unfortunately, it was pushed through unilaterally, this one piece of the package. And now the question is, what happens next? Will we have other pieces move forward unilaterally? Will negotiations be reconvened? We have called for a reconvening of these talks under President Herzog, have met repeatedly with President Herzog and supported his efforts. And we're hopeful that that will be where we end up. 
you mentioned that democracy was on display with the many protests, but some people have said the passage of this law means that democracy in Israel is at risk. So I'm curious what your take is on that. Is democracy at risk? And why is preserving democracy so important? What's at stake? Well, Israel is a democracy. Israel will continue to be a democracy. There have been many exaggerated obituaries of Israeli democracy. I would like to put those to rest. I'm sorry, that was kind of a terrible pun. But in fact, in our country, there are tensions. We had an uprising on January 6th of 2021. People tried to take over the U.S. Congress and prevent the transfer of power. We have huge polarization and divisions and tensions in our own democratic system. No one would dare to say that America is not a democracy, even with these challenges, even changing voting rights laws and gerrymandering and all the other things that happen at the state level and the national level to make alterations in our democratic system. We have our own system of appointing Supreme Court justices, and it's possible for a party in power to prevent the appointment of a justice and to ram through other justices on weird pretexts. So it's not as though we have a perfect system, nor does Israel. And Israel has shown itself to have an enduring, deeply rooted democracy. I am confident that the democratic traditions in Israel will endure even with this change in the way the balance of power is going to operate going forward. And by the way, it also must be pointed out that even though the Supreme Court, the High Court of Justice in Israel, no longer, according to this law, will be able to use the reasonableness standard, in other words, to say that a government action, an appointment is unreasonable and therefore cannot move forward, it has other tools that it can use. It's not as though the Supreme Court has been completely denuded and deprived of its ability to counteract, to overturn, to change government policy. But it does weaken the process that the Supreme Court has been using in the past. And it is unfortunate that it was rammed through unilaterally. Does that mean that Israel is not a democracy? By no means. Does that mean that more work has to be done to shore up the Israeli democracy? Yes. And by the way, ours as well, and other countries in which there are these tensions in society, we all have challenges. This is the nature of democracy. So I'm curious, at this particular moment, even if it doesn't put Israel's democracy at risk, does it put Israel's economy at risk or its safety? It's a danger. We have seen reports that there are people who are withdrawing their investments in Israel, moving them to other countries, that there are Israeli companies that are moving certain operations or certain functions overseas. There are, of course, as we have seen, reports of reservists saying that they will not serve in the military when they're called for reserve duty. All very concerning at a time when the level of threat to Israel from abroad is high. There have been attacks on Israel, not only from Gaza, which have been numerous and deadly, but also, of course, on the north, 100,000 plus missiles, maybe 150,000 plus missiles that are in Hezbollah. Every now and then, someone takes a shot into Israel from there, from Syria as well. Uh, Iran continues to advance its nuclear program and its ballistic missile program, and every now and then shoots something in the sky over Israel as well. So it's not as though the threat level to Israel is, um, isn't something we should be concerned about, and therefore the security of Israel uh, must be taken extremely seriously. If reservists are not serving, if Air Force pilots are not flying, Israel's security is under threat. And if that is the result of changes in the governing structure of Israel, um, it should be a warning, a very sharp warning to the Israeli government to go slow 
uh, to as, as as the recent American ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, uh, famously uh, told the prime minister and, and told us when we met him earlier this year as well, they should pump the brakes. You talked about the many threats facing Israel. And for that reason, U.S. foreign aid has been key to maintaining stability in the region. Does this development put that at risk? I don't think so. Obviously, we watch that very closely. We're on the Hill all the time. We speak frequently with members of Congress and their staff. You saw what happened the day before President Herzog gave his address before a joint meeting of of Congress, uh, senators and, and, and House members, just last week. And that was a vote in the U.S. House of Representatives on the essential nature of the relationship between the United States and Israel, reaffirming the strong alliance between the United States and Israel. And and that measure passed overwhelmingly. There were nine votes against that. One member abstained. But people talk all the time about elements of the Democratic Party, uh, other opponents of, of foreign aid who speak out against aid to Israel or, or threaten to cut aid to Israel. Um, you know, when push comes to shove and votes are taken, that's really not what happens in the end. I'm not saying that there isn't a concern about levels of, of support for Israel in the U.S. Congress or in the in the broad public, of course, um, that is uh, an issue that AJC monitors closely and 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 works very hard to make sure that there is a full appreciation of the value of the relationship, uh, the mutually beneficial relationship between the United States and Israel. Our security is advanced when Israel's security is advanced, and vice versa, as President Herzog, in fact, said in his speech to Congress last week. As I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been on the streets protesting for 29 weeks now, even in the heat of the summer there, which is highly impressive. Some people credit those protesters with slowing some of the reforms. Can you explain to our listeners what has been shelved? It's an interesting question, mind you, because in fact, as you know, the governing coalition in Israel includes elements that want to see really a complete overhaul of the judiciary and a complete rebalancing of the relationship of the courts and uh, and the legislature, and are not interested in shelving any aspect of the very ambitious proposal that was put forward at the beginning of this of the term of this of this government. The prime minister has indicated in various interviews over the last several months that he was not interested in advancing certain aspects, particularly the override clause, which would have empowered the legislature to counteract moves by the judiciary, by the high court, to negate, to cancel certain actions by the parliament or by the government, and the narrowness of that vote that would allow a very slim majority uh, in the in the legislature to um, to overrule the, the the court. There have been questions raised about whether other elements of his coalition um, feel the same way and whether they would prevail um, with the prime minister if push comes to shove. So we're waiting to see really how much is shelved, how much is just kind of shelved temporarily and will not move forward um, for a few months, but may come back. A lot remains to be seen. Could the high court itself overturn this new law as unreasonable? There's been some talk about that. And just uh, earlier this week, colleagues and I uh, did speak to some people in the um, in the democracy movement or the resistance, as they call it. And we're given the impression that while attempts have been made, there wasn't the expectation that the court would, would, would do that. But it's possible um, to, to say that um, 
an attempt to change the reasonableness standard is unreasonable uh, and to therefore strike it down. And then, and then who knows what happens. But I, I really do think that um, the best course of action is to uh, bring the parties back together. So AJC has been very clear about its support of President Herzog's quest for compromise. The president's position, though, is largely ceremonial. Can he bring parties together that don't want to be brought together? Can he halt legislation that does not come out of compromise? Does he have any power to do that? The legislation that passes the Knesset has to be signed by the president, um, but he has no power not to sign legislation that's uh, passed by the Knesset. So in fact, there are laws that go into effect even without the president's signature. It's an unusual system. He does have certain powers to, obviously, as you know, after an election, to ask a party that believes that it can come up with a majority uh, in the Knesset and form a government. He does have the power to empower a party to, to, to advance to form a government. But his other powers are, are quite limited. He does have the power of persuasion. He does have the power of the bully pulpit. Um, he does have the great moral authority of being the head of state of the state of Israel. He was received in the highest fashion in Washington, um, very important meeting in the Oval Office, an important meeting with the vice president, of course, the address before the uh, joint meeting of Congress. Um, so he has, um, he, and he has played his, his, his hand as, as limited as it may be on paper. He has played his hand really quite well to the point where he really is the, uh, at the center of the discussions that have, that have gone forward. Jason, why is the governing coalition so determined to restrict the high court's powers? Whether this is a matter of protecting democracy or protecting a nationalist agenda um, is, is, a, is a big debate that's going on right now in Israel. Um, but whatever it is, um, you, you really cannot change the fundamental rules of how a government operates, the balance of power between the branches of government um, without support from the public. And right now, the public has pretty clearly expressed great anxiety about the direction that uh, that this process is taking. It would be wiser for the long term of this long term survival and support of, of, of the current government and for the state of Israel if such changes are made only as a result of a national consensus. Israel is so diverse when it comes to religion and ethnicities and cultures. It's so complex that an independent judiciary seems crucial for making sure everyone shares this land, everyone is treated by the golden rule equally. You talked about the high court protecting minority rights. Is that why this decision, this attempt at reforms, seems so momentous? Yes, and I would say there are other reasons as well. And another point that I think is important to make is that the independence of the Israeli judiciary a judiciary that is independent from the political process to a large degree, not completely, but to a large degree, is armor for Israel legally, internationally. It is the ability of Israelis to say to those in the international community and in the High Court of Justice and uh, the International Court of Justice, excuse me, and, and the International Criminal Court and, and the United Nations and other international bodies that say, oh, we're going to say that Israelis are committing war crimes or we're going to hold some, some, some mock trial or some other legal, international legal action against Israel. Israelis can say, and we say in AJC, 
That's nonsense. You don't need to do that. Israel has an independent judiciary. If there are crimes that are being committed by Israeli soldiers or political figures, Israel will, will prosecute them, as they have done repeatedly. Israel has put prime ministers and presidents in jail. So don't tell us that Israelis' uh, ability to judge themselves is somehow lacking. It's not. Very important that Israel maintain an independent judiciary and the international recognition of the independence of the Israeli judiciary, which is another reason why this whole debate has been so frustrating to advocates for Israel like AJC, who know that the judiciary will remain independent in most part, um, and democracy in Israel will continue to be strong. But just the appearance that the independence of the judiciary is being weakened will be corrosive politically to Israel internationally and legally to Israel internationally. And that's another reason why we have been so steadfast in trying to urge the Israelis to go slow, make this done in a way that, that, that has broad popular support and international recognition that the judiciary's independence uh, is being upheld and is sacrosanct. We're having this conversation on the eve of Tisha B'Av, which is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar it marks a number of tragic turning points for the Jewish people, but namely the destruction of the Second Temple and the beginning of Jewish exile from Israel. My own rabbi reminded our congregation that the Jewish tradition teaches that division in the Jewish community is what ultimately led to the Temple's destruction. And here we are again. How likely is it that the coalition members will fast, reflect, and work to heal this rift in Israel? Well, it's an interesting question, Manya. And, and it was also interesting to see um, former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, um, make that same reference uh, in a tweet the other day and, and, and really call for a consensus, uh, for a, a more deliberative process uh, than, uh, than the unilateral approach that was being pursued. We're now about to enter a two-and-a-half-month uh, period of uh, summer recess, basically, for the Israeli uh, Knesset. We'll see what happens when they come back in the fall. There's other legislation that uh, that will be coming down the pike as well, including a very ambitious proposal to um, entrench the exemption for um, ultra-Orthodox community to um, conduct uh, Torah study uh, rather than serve mandatory military service that other Israeli uh, young people are, are required uh, to um, to attend, uh, whether that moves forward, whether that also sparks uh, popular uh, unrest it remains to be seen. Israel is in a very interesting place right now. Um, the democracy of Israel, um, as we discussed, is on full display. People are out there, they're motivated, they're active. Um, and, and there are tensions within the society that are, that are, that are right on the surface uh, in a way that does not exist in, in certainly in any other country in the region. We're very proud of the fact that um, with um, free expression and a, and, a, and a rambunctious free press um, and people who have very strong feelings are not afraid and have no, no inhibition whatsoever about stepping forward and trying to affect the policies of their government. There will also be other elections in Israel, and if um, if, a, if, a, if the country veers too far in one direction or another, I have full confidence that uh, the, the the Israeli public, uh, with its strong commitment to a liberal democracy, will uh, will pull pull it back. Jason, thank you so much for your perspective and for really helping us explain to our audience what this all means. Thank you, Manu. It was my pleasure. 
If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my sit-down conversation in Jerusalem with journalist Mati Friedman about Leonard Cohen's performances on the front lines of the Yom Kippur War and how that moment in Israeli history, accompanied by his music, ushered in a new era for the Jewish state. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 